0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: For anyone listening who's thinking about starting a business and thinking about, you know, doing something on their own because you feel like, because Instagram told you to, <laughs> or because because you feel like it's gonna be easier, just know that you can't have all the good stuff in entrepreneurship without the bad stuff, too. It's, it's impossible. It's the same thing as I was describing with life. You can't have both. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people now are looking at entrepreneurship, and they're saying, oh, well, I want I want this result. I want a million dollars, and I'm very ambitious. And the, the link between those two is entrepreneurship. And they're thinking that they have to become entrepreneurs because they want to make money. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only way to make money. And it's certainly not the easiest way. And you have to like to do all the other stuff that no one talks about. If you want to be able to to be an entrepreneur, you don't, you don't just get to start a cool like brand, you don't just start a brand and that makes you money.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com.
2: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Daniel, welcome to the unmistakable creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for, uh, for being here. Yeah. So, you know, you and I go way back. We met through, uh, mutual friends and I've gotten to know you over the last couple of years. And, yeah. uh, <clears throat> you know, recently you had a book come out, so that is actually why you're here. But before we get, um, into, you know, your work, uh, as you know, I like to ask questions that have nothing to do with people's work first. Sure. So, uh, what did your parents do for a living and how did that end up impacting the choices that you've made with your life and your career? You know, OK, so
1: the interesting thing about that is that over the past 20, 20 to 30 years, I've had a few different variations of like my my parental configuration and they all have different jobs. Mm-hmm. So when I was a kid, it was my mom and my grandma. And so my grandmother was an attorney and my mom never really felt the need to go traditional traditional school route. And she ended up kind of just trying a bunch of things and fell into insurance. So she was doing that when I was a kid. And then kind of, as my life progressed, my dad came back into the picture. And so my dad on the other side, not not so much the legal or procedural side, like my my grandmother, or my mom, he's more on the physical side. His family is all about like, you know, manual labor, construction, building cars. He's from Detroit. Um, and so he works for waste management. He's literally the guy picking up tons of trash every week and slinging it in the back of his car.
0: So I feel like I'm the least likely
1: person to be here right now, mm-hmm. right?
0: So you know, having uh, these really interesting parental units that shifted throughout your life, mm-hmm. um, what impact has that had, and what does that tell you about human relationships and human behavior? <sighs> you know, it's um, the thing about that is
1: relationships can can change in unexpected ways that you, that you wouldn't even you wouldn't even be able to draw out. Um, or predict, I think about, I think about my father and how I didn't know him. I didn't really, um, have any contact with him until I was 19. They, my parents were teenagers when they had me. Mm -hmm. And, um, so, I mean, they, they broke up and, uh, and then I kind of just went on my whole life, went on about my time without him. I went through most of college and when I was nineteen, he just just fell right back into the picture, just out of nowhere. Literally, um, his now ex fiance contacted me on Facebook and said, "Hey, I think I I think I know I think I am engaged to your dad, and I think and he wants to meet you." I end up meeting him through Facebook. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> and um, and we start developing our relationship. I learned all these crazy things about him that are so much like me, even though I never met him. For instance, we both have a fascination with uh, Greek history, mm-hmm. so much so that I studied abroad there and we both taught ourselves Greek, completely unrelated and had never met each other. So we build our relationship and we start to grow. And then him and my mom ended up getting back together. And, uh, and then this is, I was in Florida at the time, he moves from where he was in West Virginia down to Florida. Um, and a couple years later, they move out to California here with me and they get married. And all that's so unpredictable. So you think about human relationships, and you think about, um, you know, you think about how you fit other people into your life, and you realize, man, it can just change, and you'll never expect it. But I think that um, it's something that can provide a lot of
0: meaning for you, you know. And, and so relationships are so, so, so important. When your dad came back into your life, was it like just welcoming him with open arms? I mean, because I can't imagine that you know, not having had him there in your life didn't have some semblance of an impact on you. You know what, man? A few things about that. One, I think the number one thing
1: is my mom never badmouthed him. And I think that has a huge impact on how a child perceives that absent parent. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, a lot of, a lot of, especially mothers in that situation, tend to like badmouth the dad. Oh, this guy, you know, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't there for you or that he did this or that. And I think that's actually what had happened to her because my grandmother and my grandfather also got divorced when my mom was very young, mm-hmm. but my grandmother talked mad shit. And so that really and that affected the relationship that my mom had with her dad. Right. So my, my mom didn't want to repeat that. So my dad, I mean, they were teenagers when they had me and it just teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. and, and so they broke up, but she never badmouthed me. And it was always, the context was always, your father loves you. And when he's ready, he'll come back. Mm-hmm. And so that was what I thought my whole life. So between that and then the fact that as I gotten to know him over the, like the, like, like I say, a few, like maybe two years or so before he, yeah. before I finally met up with him, um, I just found out that we had so much in common that it was, it was hard for me to, to dislike him too much because it's, I mean, like, I see some of the things now and I'm like, wow, that's totally, that's me. Right. So I just
0: couldn't hate him, man. So <clears throat> I know you mentioned the book that you were raised by a teenage mother. That really struck me yeah. uh, as I was, I was going through the book. Yeah. And, you know, I'm curious one, you know, what is the difference of being raised, you know, by a teenage mother compared to like what a regular person experiences in terms of, of, of a parental unit? Like, you know, if, for somebody who's not raised by a teenage mother, what would you want them to know about the experience and how does it differ? I guess is really the question. Uh, I don't think, I
1: don't think that's a, I, I think that question is a little bit too, um, too general because there's so many different experiences. It's, it's really, it's less about the teenage and more about the mother. Yeah. The teenage is just a, it's an asterisk. Right. There are great teenage mothers and there are really shitty ones. Yeah. So my mom was a great teenage mother and she was also, I also had a super supportive family and. Mm. And it makes all the difference. There's a difference between like that and like being on Maury. Right. You know, so, you know, because my grandmother and her father. So like that family that I meet, Nucleus family was actually very like very well educated, all professionals, Mm -hmm. all like advanced college degrees and doctorates. Um, So even though my mom didn't end up going that route, she was influenced by all those really smart people. Right. And she had a lot of help. And especially during that time in my family, everyone was doing really well, money-wise. Yeah, Towards, as I got older, um, people just started to have problems and it wasn't going as well. But in that, like in the late 80s and 90s, Mm -hmm. people were like doing really well.
0: So it was a great situation for my mom. It was like the perfect time for her to have a kid if she was going to have one, I think. How old were you when you realized that this was different? Like this is not the norm. And how did that affect you? Like what was your reaction to it? The norm about maybe like my being raised by a teenage mother. Like how, how old were you when you finally became aware of this? The, the fact that, wait a minute, my mom is incredibly young. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I think that,
1: I think that I kind of always knew because, you know, because I spent so much time with my, the reason I knew is because I spent so much time with my grandmother mm-hmm. when I was little and they always thought she was my mother because she was, Kind of like my, what my mother's age should have been. My, my grandmother was 38 when I was born, so that's a a fair. I mean, you could certainly have kids at that age. Yeah. Um, so so people thought I was her mother. So naturally, that kind of trickled back, and I realized my mom was really young. Um, but then I think more recently, I've gotten become more aware of it because as I've um, I'm you know, out of the the kid, and the adolescent, and then the teenager, and I'm I think I'm out of I'm a young adult. I'm in 20, 29, and you know next week or so yeah but i think i'm like much more mature than before and so because of that now when i look at my mom and we have conversations we have conversations that are much more on a peer level Mm -hmm. than they would have been before and that's when i realized oh, she's not that much older than me yeah you know she's she's 40 uh she's 46 wow so she's young yeah she's pretty young and i'm 28 yeah you know so now when we have a conversation i'm like I I love her and I really value and respect her opinion but at the same time I'm like oh you don't know that much more you you haven't been around that much longer (laughs) like you know a decade and a half might not be that much more experience Mm -hmm. so
0: she's young All right. so walk me through um, the trajectory from you know leaving your parents to where you've ended up today and how you've ended up doing all this work well um, look
1: I'm still on the trajectory so it's not even hindsight yet. It's just, it's, I'm very much still in this. Mm. So all I can say are some things I've observed that have been working or some things that have led to some key critical wins, but I don't know how the story's going to turn out. And I don't even know that I can really and honestly connect the dots. I think that when it comes down to it, there is a, a fair amount of luck, but the caveat there is that everyone has some luck. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm independently blessed here. So- a few things, a few, a few key, key moments. Um, high school and college, much like anyone who's listening to this, who's a young, a young, like teenager or early twenties, you're going to have a lot of, uh, flip-flopping about what you think you want to do or what your, what your path might be. And so I had the same thing too. College, high school through college, vacillated between everything I could think of at one point I really wanted to be an FBI agent like I was seriously considering that I was seriously considering uh, going to med school Um, I was in I started off in pre-med actually didn't do didn't do too well on like basic shit chemistry I failed chemistry that sucked. I'm like, if I can't do this, I definitely am not in. I'm, I don't have the mental fortitude to be a doctor. If I if this bothers me, I can't handle it. Yeah. So um, I kind of just floated around. And then I went to, I studied, studied abroad in Greece. And being in Greece for a few semesters really, um, it really opened my mind to the different possibilities because I was traveling for the first time extensively. And that just really kind of, I could felt my brain expanding a bit. Cause have been, i have been in the U S the only place I've been is to Mexico before that, so, you know? So I, my brain started to expand and I realized that there was more, more, more possibilities to this. And so I, I went through this to college. Um, and then I kind of got spit out into the professional world. I graduated early cause I went into college with a lot of credits. And so I it was 2009 now I'm 20. I just turned, I just turned 21. Um, and I had two choices, go back to school. More school. Go to corporate job thing. Whatever that is gonna be. Mm-hmm. Both seemed real unattractive. Both seemed expensive in time and money. So I just started working regular, like just hourly things. Restaurants, museum gift shops, UPS, brown short shorts, me delivering packages. Delicious. Mm. I looked very good. <laughs> uh but nothing really nothing really fit and I was really feeling lost and um then one day in the restaurant I was working in the restaurant I just decided this is I'm just I've had enough of this I've had enough and I don't know what it's going to be but I'm going to figure out this whole making money thing I'm going to figure it out because this I've just reached a breaking point and I had reached a mental breaking point and I don't think I've actually reached one of that level since just mm-hmm. such a breaking point um maybe after this book launch And, uh, and so from there I just started learning how to freelance myself, learning how to find skills I was good at, help people and get paid for that. So the first thing I started with was test prep, SAT, ACT. I was really good at that. I found other people who had the students and the clients I wanted and partnered up with them and we made a lot of money. Um, and then I moved on and I said, you know what? I don't even want to teach people in classes anymore. I want to do something that I can travel with. So I started doing web design and development. And I wasn't really good at that stuff. I'm not a programmer. I'm not a coder. I don't have any of those types of skills. So I thought, How, what's the fastest way I can make money from this trend without me having to learn this skill? So what I did was I said, you know what? I can start selling this stuff and finding these developers. So I went on places like Elance and Odesk, which are now Upwork, or other job board sites. I would find... Uh, projects that I thought I could pitch. Uh I would pitch them. I'd find like a five or a 10 K web designer development job to build an app or something. They'd say the requirements I'd get on the phone. I'd pitch them. I'd close it. I'd find my developers, I'd find my designers, I'd pay them, I pocket some money. So I built that up and that was going really well. And as I was doing it, I was starting, I was writing about this stuff
0: Uh
1: online. Um, And eventually it got, it got picked up by different like news outlets and entrepreneur and fortune and all those places and I kind of rolled that into doing consulting for small businesses and then starting Rich20, mm-hmm. which is now the, the site that has built a platform of a couple hundred thousand people that read, watch, and share this stuff every day. Um, and it's led to this book deal, which, which we've been talking about.
0: Yeah. You, know, you said something in there that really struck me. You said that uh, both going back to school and going to a corporate job seemed expensive in mm-hmm. terms of time and money. Mm-hmm. The time part I got, mm-hmm. the part about going to a corporate job seeming expensive. Mm-hmm. I, I want you to, to, to you know expand on that because yeah. that really struck me. And, and I'm wondering why you saw the world the way that you did in that moment. That was a little Easter egg I had for you. Yeah. Uh, you know me well. <laughs> Dropping these little,
1: you will like this. Um, look, the thing the thing with the corporate job is that Number one, first and foremost, it's very expensive in your time. Depending on what, depending on what type of corporate job you're talking. So I mean, obviously, this answer is there's a there's a range here. But like, I have some friends who are doing like that first year, first to first through third year of like that really intense law firm stuff. Mm-hmm. I have friends that are doing like investment banking. Ugh, oh, oh, uh People who are in like different areas of like high finance, and these they are. Killing these people. They're crushing their employees like ants, literally to their breaking points. Even some doctors, like a lot of doctors in their first couple years of residency, are just dead. They're just destroying them. So I looked at that, first of all. So that's the what I mean in terms of time, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's expensive. Yeah. But in terms of money, um, I look at entrepreneurship as um a sort of a oh. Almost like a controlled lottery in that you get an unlimited amount of tickets that you can put in you know that you can submit and you can learn from each ticket. so eventually you can pick the right numbers and you can find what's going to work for you if you just keep entering your ticket in there. And so for me to work for 10 years at a corporate job and make a very fixed amount of money was predictable and safe, but it could be very expensive because if I just under if I figure out entrepreneurship, I stand to make so much more, and so the potential for loss is so much greater, and the the opportunity cost is so high that I have to be losing money by picking the other option.
0: Why do you think more people don't see the world that way, especially when they first get out of college? Because that's a very unusual perspective for somebody to have when they were as young as you were. Yeah. Well, I think also. So I, I think that that
1: that was an innate understanding at the time, but I think my ability to to articulate that has just come with having more perspective looking back. Yeah. I think I just felt that and I was like, oh, this this isn't this sucks. This right. that's what probably what I was thinking. But in terms of why more people don't see it like that, I think that there's just still a lot of conditioning um, around the proper way to progress your life. And I know that probably even into my early twenties, now I feel like in the last or three years, I've just gotten beat up, beat up real bad. So I've like learned some, I've just like gained a little bit of wisdom the last couple of years, mm-hmm. but I feel like even up to my early and mid twenties, I just felt like I needed some guidance, man. I just felt like, you know, I, I wish someone would just like teach me the right way to do things. So I think that there's a very attractive, uh, formula for that. That's already been told and sold mm-hmm. throughout our culture about like, you go to school, you get this job, it's going to be okay. You're going to, everything's going to be cool. It's everything's going to be chill because really our parents don't know what else to tell us. They don't know what else to tell us. They're just like, I don't know. I, I I think this is how it works. It It's work and you can look back and you can see every generation it's working less and less and less, mm-hmm. but you don't know what else to say. So you're just like, I'll just do this because they don't have the skills. They right. don't have it only, only now I think like, like our generation, and I think like I think especially millennials going forward, mm-hmm. you know, especially this now generation Z, they're going to have the better answers for their kids probably. But that's why more people don't don't start like that. But we it, now it's our responsibility yeah. to
0: make that a common line of thought. So on that note, how do you think about education now? Um, which you know, there's no way you, you I was going to let you out of this conversation <laughs> without that that question. Well, uh, so in the book I write, college is dead, mm. but.
1: I think that I should love school. No. I think it's great. There's nothing wrong with school. That's not college is dead is, is more of a of a of a barb thrown at like the institution of universities, not higher learning. Mm-hmm. It's a difference. The institution of higher learning, the the money side of this, the business aspect of this is so deeply ingrained with banks, big corporations and 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 these basically financial behemoths preying on kids who just turned 18 making them sign into like you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt before they even are fucking before they can drink Mm -hmm. before they're even self-aware enough to make good decisions um and preying on these kids and it's not it's like this america is really bad for this other countries don't have this europe and canada and like other like like good guys in the the world they don't do this you know they everyone has their shit yeah but like so i just think it's messed up and so i love college it would be one thing if college if college was free um or and you know if we had more of an opportunity to really explore but like with the way the major system is set up they just really track you into one line of thought so all that aside you know like i think that because the institution of, of universities and because the institution of higher education is so messed up right now, education we have to we have to change the way that we're thinking about that word. Education doesn't just mean within the framework or the tutelage of an institution of learning you have to you have to take it upon yourself to educate yourself there's so there's so much, access to knowledge out there. Now you can even study at a university just digitally. They have MIT, Harvard, Yale, they put up Princeton, they put up all their courses for free, man. Um, So while there is value to those old systems and those old ways of, of thinking, I think now more than ever, there's just no excuse for not learning. And you have to figure out what education means to you. But I think that more and more, we're going to get to the point where we're not where we're, we're shedding those gatekeepers. And you can see in a lot of the professions that are being um, not, that are now emerging because of all the technology we're shedding the gatekeepers. There's, there's less of, I mean, you know, doctors and lawyers are going to be probably guarded until the last, until they, until they just can't hold on to that knowledge anymore. Mm. But other than that, knowledge is, knowledge is, is becoming, you know, completely free. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. So, one of the things I am always curious about is how people's um, internal narrative and psychology around money changes um, as a byproduct of their success. And I'm, I'm curious um, one, what yours was and what the story you told yourself about money was when you were working hourly jobs. Mm. And how that's shifted and how do people shift theirs? You
1: know what's funny about that? I was, I was at, um, I was at, I was at dinner last Friday and it was, it was a nice restaurant and I still like observed myself thinking if I worked at this restaurant, the tips would be such that I could live pretty well. (laughs) 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 because I think, cause I, I, I see things from that perspective a lot. Maybe it's like, maybe that's, maybe that's like a fear-based mentality or maybe it's just like, um, a sense of like awe almost. So obviously your beliefs about money, um, change throughout your life. But I think the most dangerous thing around your beliefs about money is believing that it's being, it's being so fixed on one mentality that you're that you're unwilling to explore explore how that might change. So, for instance, when I was working at uh, this company called Kaplan, which does um, like SAT ACT test prep, which is the skill I later used to start my businesses, I um I saw at one of my students' houses that apparently families were paying a hundred dollars an hour for me to be there. And I was only making $18 an hour. And so I immediately saw black and white that they believe that I was only 18% of the value of the transaction that was going on here. And I'm thinking, I'm the one teaching. I'm the one preparing the lessons. I'm the one grading the test. I'm the one talking to the parents and the students, making everyone feel good like a mini psychiatrist. And all you guys are doing is hooking me up with this client. What, What good are you? You know? And so in that instant, I went from... Understand from just thinking from taking an hourly wage and accepting it to understanding that, oh, this is negotiable. And the only reason you get 82% of my money that I just made for you is because you hooked me up with a client. Later, that mindset went on to inform me starting these other businesses and moving on. Mm -hmm. Now, even so, even past that mentality of, you know, I see my true worth. Now I look at money less as like personally mine especially now because the business has like multiple employees and contractors and like just general bills to pay. I look at myself as the shepherd of the money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like I, I, you know, obviously I pay myself and I save money for myself and like, you know, I'm an employee of the business, but now I look at myself as like the shepherd of the flow and have to be like, okay, I have to direct the traffic to where it's supposed to go. And I, and I see it less as something that like personally excites me now. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that, that maybe in the future, like as we start making more money, I'll get more excited about it because I will have to keep more of it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that'll make it more exciting. Um, because I, what I've, what I've noticed is that as we've grown as a company, the bills have increased too. Sure. And that's, that's been
0: annoying. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's reality. Yeah. it just sucks though. You know, one of the other, other things that you said that I didn't want to let go, um, was that you got beat up quite a bit in your twenties and and like not physically beat up, but, um, that's a different podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure we can probably find a podcast to talk about that on, but, um, I'm curious, like one, you know, what those experiences were, how you got out of them and, and what you learned from them. Well, I mean, so
1: it's interesting. Uh, Now, looking, so I'll talk about those in a second, but now looking back on those experiences, I realize how valuable it is to have, um, like painful experiences Mm -hmm. because we spend our whole life trying to avoid them, and sometimes just avoiding painful experiences causes more anxiety than the pain actually would. So, that being said, um, the most difficult thing in my life happened in 2016. Uh, My grandmother died and it was super, super surprising because she was, uh, she was just really young. And it's actually funny because we're in the studio now uh, and we're in forward productions in Culver city here in LA. And um, the last one of the, one of the most recent podcasts I did here was with Mark Golston, who is a clinical psychiatrist, and he actually did a session with me about this experience on the show, wow. which I didn't intend to do, but I was like, "Okay, we're gonna do this. Like, we're gonna do a therapy session right here. Great." So it was it was super like super painful, um, and so this threw me into like a really bad tailspin of just like not caring about my life, not caring about business, not caring about other relationships, and really just like, lo- like just losing my shit, mm-hmm. and. Going through that, that really painful, deep experience, um, has really just taught me that, you know, that's part of it. Like you don't, you don't get to experience all the good stuff you're trying to experience. You're all, you're trying you like us as ambitious guys. We're trying to experience all this good stuff,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and it's just part of life to have to experience the negative side, the opposite. side. I wouldn't call it negative now. Yeah, I would just say it's it's just part of life to experience you know, the B side of this, because it, when we, when we stop taking some of those negative things so personally, it makes it easier. You know, I think about my grandmother dying. I think, you know, I'm so sad for me. Mm-hmm. I'm very sad about me, but it's always about how sad I feel. It's not, you know, she's gone. So it's okay. Like she's, she's good. She's straight. She's good. Yeah. You know, and any pain that I feel is because I'm so sad because I have, I've personally suffered a loss, but, mm-hmm. But if you kinda of just like de like disassociate associate yourself from that, you can start to see that like it's not it's not something that you need to hold on to for the rest of your life. And that's allowed me to move past that. And now I look at some of the other things that happened to me and I think, oh, I don't have to stay attached to that. Yeah. You know? And that's really helped me to like just move through this this book launch, for instance. Um I was really getting like obsessive about just, you know, we have to hit this New York Times list and what it's gonna mean if we don't hit it and how I'm gonna feel about myself. Uh, and what that's going to mean and where my career is going to go. What, like, what? like, I feel like I just got here. I don't want to like do one thing. It flops. I'm done. I want to keep going. And I look back on, I look at the that experience with the New York Times, I look back at the experience, you know, learning how to come out of this thing with my grandmother and I realized, man, every moment you're you're remaking yourself and you don't have to cling to bad shit that happens to you. You can just keep moving because life is, life is going to continue to turn. It's going to get better and you can just roll with it. So I'm just becoming a lot more a lot more flexible, man. And it's really, um, so I'm glad I'm grateful for that pain, you know, Yeah, it's
0: made me resilient. What are, um, some of the challenges that you've experienced business-wise early on? Like, you know, to get to this point, yeah. it was so funny. Cause I met you in 2016 and I had no idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah.
0: Oh man. Um,
1: I mean so many, you know, and, and, you know, first of all, for anyone listening, who's thinking about starting a business and thinking about, you know, doing something on their own, because you feel like, because Instagram told you to, or because, (laughs) because you feel like it's going to be easier, just know that you can't have all the good stuff in entrepreneurship without the bad stuff too. It's it's impossible. It's the same thing as I was describing with life. You can't have both. Um, so a lot of people now are looking at entrepreneurship and they're saying, Oh, well I want, I want this result. I want a million dollars and I'm very ambitious. And the the link between those two is entrepreneurship. And they're thinking that they have to become entrepreneurs because they want to make money. Mm -hmm. But that's not the only way to make money. Yeah. And it's certainly not the easiest way. And you have to like to do all the other stuff that no one talks about if you want to be able to to be an entrepreneur. You don't you don't just get to start a cool like brand. You don't just start a brand and that makes you money. Yeah. You know, so business challenges, first of all, is the number one business challenge was getting in without really knowing what I was doing. Um I was a really good copywriter. I was a really good marketer, and I worked with Ramit from I Will Teach for a while. Mm -hmm. And his, um, like, I learned a lot with him. I learned a lot with, like, with his whole team. We just, at the end of the day, weren't weren't a really good fit because he's just such a fucking hard ass. And at the time, I just was like, I just didn't know how to handle that. And then I think also too, just like, at the end of the day, like, we just have clashing personalities. I want to be an alpha too. Sure. And I think there's a very, it's a very one, one note thing over there. Mm-hmm. And it, well, there wasn't a lot of room for me to grow there. So I just think it wasn't a good fit overall, but I'm grateful for, for that experience. But True. I took that experience going into Launching Rich 20 and thinking I'm really good at writing copy and marketing. So that makes me a good entrepreneur. Yeah, And I realized, you know, later that that, that wasn't the case. Like marketing is one skill of entrepreneurship, but it's not, but you also need to know uh, finance and you also need to know accounting and, and partnerships. And, you know, um, you know, Hiring and firing and all these other things, mm-hmm. and so I had to learn every single one of those along the way. Yeah, and so I think the first thing is understand what you're what you're really getting into when you get into entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone has different experiences, but at the end of the day, if you want to survive, the main reason why they say, oh, nine out of ten businesses fail, is because people that start businesses don't take the time and attention to learn the skills. Yeah, it's just, it's a skill like any other. It's like any other skill set. You just got to get good at it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's the first thing I learned was just man. That was the first little foible, just like thinking that I was an entrepreneur and really having just had a marketing background. And now only now I'm coming into like my true, like as a businessman, you know?
0: I want to talk about behavioral change Mm -hmm. um, for a little bit, especially since you came from working with Ramit, which I know a good amount of his work really at the foundation of it is not about getting rich, but really changing behavior. Sure, sure. Um, You know, behavioral change in particular has really been uh, an interest of mine. And anybody who's listening to the show knows based on the amount of performance psychologists that we've brought in to talk about how they do what they do and, and, you know, uh, all that stuff. Um, I, I'm curious, based on your experience, why you think that behavioral change doesn't stick, and why it's so difficult for so many people. Hmm. Well,
1: I mean, I think that behavior certainly can change uh, when the result of the of the you know behavior is causing more pain than it would cause to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. I, I think people do change when that behavior just causes too much pain. But I think often enough, we don't get to that point. I think often enough it causes just enough damage to like affect our lives, but not really make us want to change. Yeah. So like with smoking, you know, sure. if you're coughing, but you're not like hacking up a lung every day, you're like, yeah, I'll deal with it. So I think the first thing is just like, human inertia is a very strong force. Mm. It's a very strong force. It's very easy. For me personally, like, and this is being an ambitious guy, being someone who runs around a lot, I could certainly see many days just not doing anything. Yeah. And so I think that a lot of people are just, um, they're just kind of dragged down by that gravity. I think a lot of, I think we all have that tendency just not want to exert any more energy than we have to. And, and changing the habits hard, behavior mm-hmm. behaviors hard. So the first thing is just the aversion to hard things. Humans don't like doing it. And the second thing is we're a lot of times we don't live in environments that are conducive to those habit changes. Yeah. And, that's partially our doing and partially just society. Like, you know, you try to start a diet and it's always someone's birthday. It's, <laughs> it's always like national pancake day. And you're like, fuck, you know, I thought that I was trying to do my diet thing and it's not, it's not the world is not conforming to my reality right now. Yeah. So I think it's both things it's hard to do it. And there's just a lot of discouragement, you uh-huh. know, and, and you really have to really be single minded to do it. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, speaking of, of, behavior, you know, one of the things that really struck me as, as I've you know gotten to know you is, how you know rigid you are about certain behaviors mm-hmm. in terms of diet in terms yeah, yeah, yeah. of what time you wake up and all of that like you know just from having followed you on on instagram yeah, yeah. every morning when i check i'm like damn this dude gets up uh, earlier than i do uh, and i thought i was I, I thought i was pretty good like yeah, i'm up good. by 6 a.m most days and, at my desk writing but um uh, you know I, one tell us about this daily routine and, and what prompted oh, yeah. it what you know prompted all these changes in diet and what impact have they had on your life because i'm very curious about those things well i mean especially since you know we met and I happened to be eating Del Taco since you invited me to a studio that is right next to Del Taco.
1: I told I said, we're going to have to have a, a friend to friend talk about that later. <laughs> we can't have you eating Del Taco, man, we need you around yeah. to make more beautiful content. Um, I, I think, you know, the daily routine is something that's been a powerful tool for me to get the most out of myself in some really key areas of my life. And the first area is the writing. Mm-hmm. When I first started the daily routine, um, which I'll outline in a second. Uh I was working with my coach Adam Reed, who is a uh who's who's an executive strategist basically, and one of his core tenants is like this very um customized early morning wake up routine. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that I naturally did. I was never naturally an early riser. I was always kind of just like I would say average 738 and over a period of a few months, um, Adam and I got down to, got me down to like 445, 430 to 445 on the wake ups. And it really, really helped me get my writing done. I mean, when I was writing the book, it was really, really useful because it just gave me this solid two hour block in the morning where I was completely undisturbed. No one was awake, mm-hmm. complete freedom. And that's something you don't get a lot. And waking up in the morning and getting up first and just punching that clock in and getting there before the rest of the world makes a difference. You can read Jocko Wilnick, you know, Extreme Ownership, yep. and he talks about it too. Like getting up early, um, you can you can have a lot of effective time, even if you even if the rest of your day is kind of spent fiddling away. Yeah, I'd agree. So you know, I just found it was so useful that I continued to practice after writing the book, mm-hmm. um, and I've gotten a lot out of it. Um, the downside of it. Is that you become so trained to wake up, and so basically the routine is: I wake up um, around 4:45. I um, I'll go get I'll take a cold shower. I'll go get a quick breakfast. I'll slam my workout. I'll come back. I'll do about an hour of writing. I'll meditate and I'll get to work every single day. And it's a great, great, great routine. It works really well. The downside is that you get so trained to do it that no matter what time you go to bed, you will wake up at 4.45. And that's a problem because you start testing your boundaries right. and saying, oh, well, I can go to bed at 10.30. You wake up the next day, you're not so tired. Like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Yeah. Maybe I can go 11. Maybe I can go 12. And by the time you really start testing your boundaries, now you're just eating into the next day. Uh-huh. And so if you're going to do it, the most important thing about the morning routine is the nighttime routine the night before. All right. And you have to get to bed at a good time. For from the morning routine to work, Everyone wants to optimize themselves and be so I'm Dave Asprey or, you know, <laughs> yeah. whatever, and get up and do crazy shit in the morning. But it starts at night. Yeah. And if you're not going to bed at nine 30, you're losing. You know, and so that's, so you train yourself to be able to go to bed and that's a whole nighttime routine. So Mm -hmm. you might need to get some classical music. I like to do that. I like to take off, turn off screens an hour before I go to sleep. I like to get, I get like a little hot neck wrap. I put on some soothing sounds and I do some yoga and then I'm going to bed. I'm making myself go to bed and that's when the morning routine supercharge your
0: life. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. You know, one of the the things that I noticed in the process of, of working on my current book is, you know by paying a lot of close attention to habits and how they impact you. And I I noticed, you know, I make a point to turn off uh, everything at seven o'clock, you know, Mm -hmm. even if I'm going to sleep at 10, I'm like, okay, that's it. All devices shut off, not even, you know, put them away, just turn them off completely. And the difference that it's made when I wake up in the morning and I actually sit down to work okay. is profound. It's profound. So it's you're, you're like, wow, I don't feel scatterbrained. I don't feel like I have a lack of focus yeah. and I can do more in an hour. And, you know, the thing I've, I found with this morning routine is that you're able to do in one hour what most people would think would take three. Correct. If you if you follow it religiously. Correct. Because there's just um, there's just this great sense of
1: clarity and I've noticed a lot that the more I use social media and it's tough because I, I, you know, I do love social media yeah. and I'm also like I'm on it a lot and, and I get a lot of dopamine from playing with it and it gives me, a lot, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's good for my ego in a lot of ways, yeah. but so it helps me in that way. But at the same time, it's really exhausting. And, and if you're on it a lot, it really does intellectually exhaust you Sure. Um, especially if you're very responsive to people and so I'll find myself in like a, a mild brain fog sometimes because I've just responded to so many things I have so many thoughts going in and out mm-hmm. and sometimes I just think whoa man like if I'm just observing myself man it's like there's a lot of shit going on up there. Yeah. So it's great to at least turn off before you go to bed, man, at least just like for an hour or so, just mm. have nothing. Cause if you're in there at night and it's dark and you're still on it, you're like, what's the point of even being a human if I'm mm. going to be on this phone all the time? Yeah. You know,
0: um, tell me about Bra- uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs> How'd you get into it? I mean, <laughs> I, I, like we have not talked about that. and I know when, it's a big part of your life. you
1: like to know, uh, know jujitsu is so cool because it's the only martial art that i've experienced um and i've done a, a few different ones but it's the only the only experience that i've had where the community is so strong that if you find someone who does it and you guys have even that single point of connection you're automatically friends um and you automatically can go into a very very long passionate discussion and form a relationship immediately so and I think I think that's what attracted me at first. Um, Jiu Jitsu is something that I first started working on in two thousand nine when I um, when I was shooting when I was shooting a movie in Tampa, it was called Caged Dreams. It was this MMA short and we raised a bunch of money for it and uh, and it was really fun and it was a great production and it was my first I think my first or second paid acting thing, which was cool. And so one of the perks of the the training, I thought it was a perk for sure, was I got to train with, um, this crazy Brazilian guy named Hernando Tavares, Hernando with an R. Um, and man, this guy is like a human pit bull. And I remember training with him and he's, he's gotta be like, you know, 140 pounds or something super light. And just the amount of power and control he had over my body where I physically couldn't even, I his life was my life was completely in his hands. With a small little dude, I thought this is something that I need to learn. And so a few years went went by where I kind of like shuffled it to the back of my mind. And then when I got to California, it was such a great, perfect place to learn because it's like the epicenter of jiu-jitsu here, especially in LA. And so I've started training it for you know a few years now consistently, and I've done maybe six, five or six tournaments, and uh, it's just a, it's a great, great life enhancing sport and art.
0: You know, one of the things that I've I've observed, even in the process of of working on my second book is, is this, I keep finding this link between anybody who does anything incredibly creative, entrepreneurial and some physical activity Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that is a major driver um, behind (laughs) what they do. And I, I, why do you think that is? Well, I think that uh, a
1: few things, one, um, I believe it would be, uh, it's, I think it was Cal Newport who talked about this. Um, oh, no, no, no. It was Weightskin. It was Josh Weightskin who mm-hmm. talked about um, how sometimes physically exerting yourself, like even doing sprints, can give you mental resilience mm-hmm. to allow you to push through hard intellectual challenges. And I think that there is that link. So, a lot of people who push consistently through hard intellectual challenges need that physical stimulus to be able to, uh, honestly, train themselves with pain. No. I think there's a correlation between, you know, for me, every morning, choking someone or getting choked and then having a problem at work and going, uh, at least I'm not getting choked. Yeah. You know, there is something to to be said there. And I think that, um, I think there also is whether, whether it's a known, there's a known quantity of, you know, good that it does or not. I think that everybody who's successful intrinsically knows uh, maybe not everybody, but many people who are successful understand that there is, um, that being physically sharp, is an advantage Mm -hmm. it's a it's it's an advantage for people who want to go harder go longer like just be dominant in situations being physically in shape is a very very powerful tool
0: wow so we're you know literally around the corner from this book coming out oh yeah um yes you know first uh you know i want to let you tell our audience a little bit about the book um But before we do that, um, I'm curious. You know, with uh, you know, you're we've spent a lot of time looking back, basically, Mm -hmm. at your life. And and one thing I'm curious about, you know, with you having a birthday coming up, funny enough, my birthday is tomorrow. Um, Happy birthday! Yeah, thanks. And uh, I'm curious what you see when you look forward.
1: (sighs) I always get so surprised by everything that happens. So it's so it's so hard to. I wish you know that's that's the thing, man. I always I'm always. So surprised when I look back now, even five years ago, no. I think, man, I, I, there's no way I could have told what was going on here. what was going to happen. So looking forward, all that I have are like, you know, are just projections now uh, because I, I don't really believe in having too much of a long-term planning anymore. I have plans to go a few years ahead. One of the things I'd like to do in the near future, I'd like to write a few more books. Mm-hmm. I have a few ideas in mind for that. Um, I'd like to do some unscripted television so I'm really interested in doing a reality show uh, that features me and my team helping young entrepreneurs start businesses. I think that'd be fantastic. Um and I know I'd like to I know I'd like to start doing more um more public engagements, more talks, mm-hmm. more appearances like that, more keynotes. Um in the long term future, man, I don't know, maybe run for Senate. Serious. <laughs> I might. Yeah. Um I don't think my I think I got my porn taken off.
0: Uh, and uh, yeah, I have too many skeletons in my closet for a political career. Like the, the, that option is not on the table any, any longer. The thing for
1: me. is by the time, by the time you like, let's say you ran in 20 years. Okay. Yeah. People are going to be so open by then. It's not going to matter, dude. Everyone's going to have, because social media is going to be so evolved by then. There's nothing that you're going to be able to hide anyway. Yeah. You know, especially like my, cause you're a little bit older than me and my audience, like the millennials, by the time that we're the ones running for, for president, we'll all been on Facebook that whole time. Yeah. And so there's nothing you think you're going to, there's the scandal is going to, that word's going <laughs> to go away. Everyone's going to have their timeline history. So looking forward. Yeah. I mean, um, I like to keep doing what I'm doing for now. And I have, you know, I have a lot of ambitions, but outside of the, you know, the next four or five years, really continuing to grow the book um, and continue to, to write more inspiring content and to do some television work and to do more public stuff. Man, I'm just so open. And I'm, you know, I, I wish, I almost wish I did have a like, I, I want to have a $100 million and this and that, but I'm just having a good time, man. Yeah, I'm really just, having, I'm enjoying my life, so. Cool.
0: Well, tell people about the book. Where can they learn more about it? What's it about? What's the yeah. story about it? So
1: here's the thing, guys. Uh, we all know ROI, we're smart, return on investment. Uh, Rich 20 something is about ROT return on your 20s. And we believe that that decade or I'd say decade and a half, somewhere between you know your early 20s and your mid 30s is just a critical period where if you take advantage of that relatively short time period in the frame of your life, you take advantage of that time period, you can make a lot of really positive changes going forward in your 30s, 40s, 50s, beyond. And you can set yourself up where you can live the type of life that you want. And so the book encapsulates how to do that through a few different modalities. One is just understanding this game being played around you in terms of how the, you know, a brief, a brief discourse in like how the job market works and why you're making the amount of money you're making and how to make more. Um, and then we actually talk about real strategies for building a business, including how to start with skills you already have and how to grow from there and how to go from zero to your first hundred K. And then we also talk about how to turn that online and how to grow following online around the things that you care about. Um, and then kind of, we wrap up the, the book talking about the mental strategies you're going to need going forward as you start to see more and more success and how to prepare for what it is that you're going to need to do to take yourself to the next level. So it's a pretty great book for anyone who's just starting off and it goes all the way through intermediate and advanced people who just want to get an edge. And I, I recommend you check it out. rich slash book is where you can go to get it and click on your preferred uh, fulfillment center. Um, and from there, You can just hit me up. I'm Daniel at rich 20 something on any social media platform or Daniel, rich 20 something.com. And,
0: uh, I love you guys. Cool. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. Yes. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: (sighs) The commitment to honesty unmistakably. Yeah.
0: Awesome. Well, uh, I think that makes a, a very fitting end to our conversation. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us and share your story and insight with, with our listeners. You too, my brother. I appreciate it. Yeah. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming?